Happy Monday, everyone. Before we get into today's episode of the 1099 podcast with Assassin's Creed and Horizon writer, Giannis Lone Van Geest, I just wanted to give a really quick life update, just because people have been so incredibly nice and asking how the job search has been going since I posted that pretty personal podcast recently. Um, I won't be making like a super public announcement about the job as far as I know. Uh, what I will say is this, uh, I have a contract offer. Um, I'm good. I, uh, there were two main ones. It's been a big series of interviews. It's been a big series of meetings. I've been really, really fortunate to have a lot of options and a lot of cool different routes my career could take at this point. Uh, I just wanted to say, I'll give as many details as I can without talking too much about it. Uh, the two final choices one was to get into the publishing side of games with a major publisher that you would know. Um, and one was to get back into development. And um, I'm getting the contract should be either end of day today or tomorrow. And it'll be getting back in the development side of things. Uh, it's a really great opportunity with a group who I really believe in. Um, it's a lot of people who I've worked with before. Uh it is a newer company, so you wouldn't recognize. It's not like I'm suddenly being like, I'm joining fucking super giant games. Nothing like that. Uh, I will be coming on as um, it'll be in a much better role than my last one. It'll be instead of an AP, I'll be a full-time producer, brand manager. It's I don't want to talk too much about it yet. I'll just say it, it's a really cool opportunity with people who I really like. It was really hard to finally choose between this and the publishing side, but this is the one that makes the most sense for where I'm at. It's I should be starting today is what the twelfth, a week from today actually. I will be back to work. No changes to the podcast. Uh, the publishing one was the one where I needed to have some like legal conversations before probably booking certain guests or something like that. But yeah, it's um, it feels good. I'm excited to get back to work. I'll tell you what. It is, it's hard to relax during this period where it's essentially a quote-unquote break for, this is week four, week five, something like that. But when you're searching for jobs, you're doing interviews, you're constantly thinking about that. It's hard to just be like, okay, I'm going to relax. I played a lot of Dragon Quest, I'll tell you that much, but <laughs> there's always just in the back of my mind like, okay, should I be doing more job searching? Do I have enough irons in the fire? Should I be bugging these people to be like, any update or anything like that? So... Um, this has been a really crazy stretch and, you know, maybe the best thing that could have ha ever happened to me was getting laid off because it's, it's really focused me in a lot of new ways. It's gotten me both job offers were, you know, big, uh, big upgrades over what I was just doing, which was really encouraging to see. And I feel really good about where I'm at right now. So I'm staying in LA. I am staying in games. Um, I'm doing something that I'm passionate about, uh, and along with that, I'm staying in the podcast game. The, the 1099 goes on. The 1099 cannot be stopped. It will not change any capacity. So thank you so much for everyone who's reached out and who's asked and who's, um, said positive things about that personal podcast, who shared their story with me, who's, you know, said that they... They're also going through something or they're going through the same sort of job transition or considering talking to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I actually have an appointment with my psychiatrist today, um, not long after this podcast goes up. Um, so things are 
really looking up. I'm happy I'm staying in LA. I'm happy I'm continuing to work in games. It was definitely like touch and go for a bit about what direction I wanted to take. But in the end, um, the two, the final two were both in games. And the final two made a lot of sense and were both exciting for me. And that's the, that's important to me right now. Do something that I'm excited to do and that hopefully I'm good at. So Again, today's episode is all about uh, games writing, not in the media sense, but um, Janis Lent van Geest has done work on Assassin's Creed Origins and done work on um, Horizon Zero Dawn, the, the Frozen Wilds DLC. She's a really great advocate for uh, women in games writing. She's an awesome person, and uh, I, I really think she has a lot of cool things to say that you like so even if you're not into if, if you if your dream isn't to write for a video game i think you'll get a lot out of it but if you are someone who's trying to break into the industry you'll want to listen to this one because she gives a lot of incredible tips and a lot of great ways that you can start and gives a lot of insight into what this job actually is because a lot of people just assume that you are i'm writing some giant story for a game but really it's there's a lot of minutiae and a lot of smaller things that you get into when you're in this role so I won't delay any longer. Again, thanks for everyone's support and concern. Uh, I'm back. I'm here. I'm doing this. Um, I'll give more details as I have them. Like you'll probably see updates on like my LinkedIn, or if you want to really check that, I probably won't talk too much about the podcast on the podcast yet. Um, as it becomes more public, I will become more public with it too. So, yep, I won't bore you anymore with that. Let's get right into the episode with Giannis Van Geest. Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the 1099 for the week of November 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a game writer at Wooga, former scriptwriter at Guerrilla Games, former writer for Ubisoft on Assassin's Creed, former narrative designer at Ludia, and an advocate for aspiring professionals in the industry, Jana Sloan Van Giest. Jana, how are you doing today? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I am doing fantastic. It's always funny to do like the how are you, even though we've been talking for like 10 minutes. It's just none of it was actually recorded. Actually, to be honest, I'm less concerned with how you're doing than how the dog is doing. How is the dog she's, doing? She just um, jumped up on the bed and now she's currently snoring. Um, it's really... My dog... I, I, so everyone always jokes about like, oh, what if my dog does at home while I'm at work? Well, I worked from home for three years, so I got to see it firsthand. She doesn't do anything. <laughs> like, it was just like, how many different ways can I sleep? And how many different like areas in this house can I sleep on? She's just... When I did the 35-hour drive from Jacksonville to LA, it was just her sleeping in the car, getting up every time we got to go get gas, and then just sleeping again. She's my ultimate spirit animal. <laughs> well, uh, I think that cats are more likely to get up to terrible mischief when you're gone. Mm -hmm. But they always pretend when you're there, they pretend that, that that they're completely innocent. But then when you get home, there's like paw prints on the counter and garbage on the floor. Maybe I just had particularly bad cats. <laughs> this might just be like a personal experience well cats are devious dogs are usually just stupid so if like if bella does something dumb 
it's normally just like, okay, that was not really on purpose. Example, sorry to get off track already, but uh, I I was feuding with her. And the only way I can really describe that is she kept barking at everything going by. So I did a full blown like, up oh, time out, put her in. I put her in my roommate's room and closed the door for a bit. Like, oh, this will teach you. Five minutes later, I opened the door and she puked on the floor. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like it wasn't even my stomach hurts. It was like, this is what you get for feuding with me. And she just purposely puked on the floor. Just walked out, wagged her tail, and then just stared at me. So, like, she she does have a bit of a cat side in her where there's a little bit of deviousness, but she's not overly destructive. Now I find myself wishing I could puke on demand to, like, it's, express my feelings. <laughs> that's a really good command, right? Like, people talk about an acting where you're like, oh, I can cry on command. What if you could just puke on command as, like, a, I don't like, oh, I'm angry at this person. And, like, that's it. Like, maybe that's just how you should do things. There's like 18 situations that immediately spring to mind where that would be useful. It's probably the worst superpower, but it has like some value to it. It's just like bodily functions on command, whether that be crying or puking might not be the worst thing. To get to actually what you do, when I was going through um, your LinkedIn, resume, everything like that, did a lot of digging. Uh, I thought one of the coolest parts was actually the last part of the intro I did, which is this idea that you're this advocate for aspiring professionals in the industry because this is a really competitive industry in general, whether you're in media, whether you're in development, whether you're in publishing, there's not as many jobs as you'd hope. So people are really fighting for them, but you founded a nonprofit to help mentor women who are trying to get into games. How did that start? And what sort of mentoring have you been doing? Uh, well, it started because people were so incredibly generous with me when I was interested in becoming a game writer, but hadn't become one yet. I, reached out to probably 20 people on LinkedIn and on social media and working as game writers in Montreal and asked them if they were willing to have coffee with me and talk to me about their work. And nearly everyone said yes. I think only one person said no. And I'm going to remember that person for the rest of my life. But anyway, I digress. Um, (laughs) But I just was so grateful for the help I was getting. And uh, I wanted to give back. So basically, as soon as I got that long coveted job as a game writer, I started uh, working with people who were interested in doing the same job. And that kind of thing tends to snowball. It's like once you are making yourself available as an advocate, uh, you are become known as one and so more people reach out to you. And I had been working with this organization based in Montreal called Pixels for some years. Uh, they are a grassroots organization that helps women make and get into the game industry. And they, what's interesting about them is that they're not simply a career-focused program, but they also treat games as a private artistic practice, and I really like that about them. And I had been going to their events, and I went through their game design incubator, which is an amazing six-week program where they select 10 women and walk them through the process of making their own game prototypes. Uh, so I had done that, and I was the biggest Pixels fangirl, and I had approached them about putting together a writing group. And so they agreed to that. They agreed to allow us to develop the writing group under their umbrella. And it gradually, through feedback from the participants, became a more and more uh short-term and honed program where we enrolled eight participants and they met twice a month for six months and each month they would produce a piece of writing related to games. Mm -hmm. And so we've done the program 
two, we did the program for two years, and that meant there were 16 graduates, and 12 of them are now working full-time in the games industry and narrative wow. roles. So we're really excited about the program. We're really proud of everyone who went through it, and it's being run again this year in my absence, which is really exciting for me because it means that something that I helped establish can be carried on without my immediate involvement, and that means that the program is really strong and that it works for people. That's incredible. That's really awesome. And I, I feel like your story is similar to, I know a lot of people who get help early on and see people who have made it help them make it. You you do kind of feel like you owe something, right? Like, oh, the, it's almost like the universe helped me out and now I need to pay that back, pay that forward. And uh, But it's it's strange because there's so many cases like that where people feel that way, but there aren't all these resources out there to help kind of foster people into development or media or anything like that. I know when I was just searching high and low for how do I get on IGN? How do I get on GameSpot? I couldn't find real solid answers. And maybe because there's no perfect blueprint, everyone's different. But um, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast. Because once I did make it, I was like, well, let me bring on some other freelancers and give advice. And I re read some different books. Um, up, up, down, down, left, right was great in terms of here's how you send pitches out. But why do you think that even though there's so many people who want to get into games, there aren't that many resources to help guide people in the right direction. Do you think it is because of that competitive nature or that'll just be the industry within five years will have a lot more once more people start working on that? Well, there are already a lot more resources available now than there were five years ago. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are a number of reasons why they aren't more widely available. One of them is that the development process differs wildly from studio to studio. Uh, one is a lack of proprietary software in the industry. A, mo a lot of games companies either use in-house software uh, that is just restricted to use within that company, or they use really general software like Google Docs. Like I've written a couple of games on Google Docs now. And so when you're using really general software or software that has a really restricted license, it's hard to share knowledge about it that's specific to this very particular practice of writing, uh, when I'm talking about games writing at least. And you know, the secrecy surrounding this production process definitely contributes to a lack of public resources, but I think that people are doing what they can to address that. They're just individuals though, they don't have the same access to resources and infrastructures that companies have. And so until there's a little more transparency in the way that we share information between companies, I think that that's going to continue to be a problem, but it is a problem that's only being addressed by individuals and by academic institutions. Yeah, and the crazy part is the differences aren't just between indie and AAA or III, which is a weird term that's still being thrown around. It's just every single studio is so wildly different in the tools they use and the structure of how they do it. And you were at Gameloft in 2011, but one of your bigger narrative roles came later in 2015. At that time, did you at all feel overwhelmed when you were in your first games writing job? Because you mentioned there's so many different styles, there's so many different ways to do this. Did it take a while to adapt to writing of that nature? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I basically spent my first three weeks at my first game writing job with my hands frozen into little claws over the keyboard, too scared to write one single word. And fortunately, the onboarding for my first game writing job was really wonderful. Uh, it was at Ludia, and they did just such a great job with a novice writer. Uh, we had a really strong producer and a really strong emphasis on 
uh, leadership development for people who were new to leadership, and that in turn benefited me, who was new to the job in general. And Battlestar Galactica was an amazing license to start with because uh, it already had a highly established backstory, lore, and character profiles. And so in that sense, a lot of the work that I would normally have had to do to make those characters and that appealing and that backstory rich was already done for me. At the same time, it was super intimidating because Battlestar Galactica is an Emmy Award winning show. And I was like, I have big shoes to fill. <laughs> but in the end, I'm happy with the work that I did on the project. And it was an amazing experience working on the team. And it just set a really ground, great foundation for the rest of the work that I've done in the industry so far. Yeah, the idea of working on a major franchise terrifies me. I, I think just <laughs> the thought of uh, if you're working on when I had I, 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 it was one of the I'm terrible with names right now. Uh, you know, it's Chris Avalon when he was talking about how he worked on Star Wars. The the idea of here's this massive like book of lore you essentially need to know so that suddenly I feel like I made a yellow light a yellow uh, lightsaber and someone's like you can't do that like that is against the rules you can't do it. There's all these established rules there, so you do get the boost of there's already this ingrained interest in what I'm making, but also the pressure is bigger. Did you get blowback from any sort of fans of Battlestar Galactica? Were they like, um, actually you can't do that because X, Y, and Z. Did that happen? Well, I really deeply immersed myself in research because research is super fun. And at first I was like, I'm going to impress all the fans with my complimentary knowledge <laughs> of this franchise. I'm going to integrate all of these franchise Easter eggs and all of this franchise specific knowledge. And then I realized that that was really detracting from the clarity of the story. And so I took a lot of that out. And uh, I mostly got positive feedback from him. Nobody contacted me directly with any negative feedback. One time I went into the Battlestar Galactica Facebook group and I saw a bunch of fans wagging on it. And I was like, I'm out. Bye. <laughs> yeah, and, not a great idea. Yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm not really inclined to go to a place where I'm, you know, deliberately immersing myself in negative feedback. But, you know, I did read almost all of the reviews on the App Store and on Google Play. And I thought that most of the critiques were really fair. I was pretty blown away by the critical feedback that the people had on the story I was like you know what that's pretty legit and so honestly like the majority of my interactions with public criticism have been positive I don't expect it to necessarily stay that way but I'm on a good street. I have a feeling your experience is rare I'm happy you had that positive experience like as someone who reviewed games for a while you look at the comment section you're like well I'm staying in bed all day. This is too much to deal with after reading all this. But yeah, it's good to actually have a positive one. And we talked earlier about how every single job is different, the tools that are used and the processes being implemented. And I think when people hear game writer, they just assume you're mapping out these major portions of the narrative, who backstabs, who the motivations of the heroes and the villains, the grand things like that. But you're often dealing with the style guide, NPC barks, and the more technical things of that nature. So let's use Assassin's Creed as an example. How many writers was that split between? And what sort of work were you doing there? Maybe the how many writers is a hard question to answer, but with a writing team of that scale and an amount of text and dialogue that heavy, what were you doing? I think we were a dozen writers on the team. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them I never spoke to because we were in multiple offices. I think we were split out be between four offices. And the way the work was divided up there was that it was uh, each writer was assigned a regional hub or possibly two. 
And so the majority of the work I did on the game was on the Memphis hub. And because the main path, the critical path of the uh, story passed through each geographical hub, that means that each writer got to do some work on the main path as well as writing all of the side quests quest associated with that geographical hub. And uh, I really love Memphis. Um, if they had given me a choice of which hub to pick, I would have picked Memphis because I was really interested in these sort of mystical religious aspects of the location. And uh, we had a really good rapport on the Assassin's Creed Origins writing team. Uh, we all got along really well, and uh, our work seemed to harmonize really easily. And uh, I really appreciated the knowledge and expertise of the other writers because this was my first AAA gig, and I have a lot to learn. And uh, I'm still in contact with a lot of them, even though I'm living in Europe now. What sort of tools were you using in terms of tracking all this stuff? Because I know you think of Jira, you think of a lot of people just communicating over Slack or uh, over one of the other various ways to do that. Did you have a whole bunch of tools you're all integrated in to make sure that no one's overlapping work? Yeah, I mean, on the production on that scale, even with the best tools, it's difficult to keep track of that stuff. And I was glad it wasn't my job to keep track of it. Uh, we did use Jira and we used an internal chat client and we used a specific software that was developed for script writing at Ubisoft that allowed us to write in a movie script format, but it also had a whole bunch of backend functions primarily related to audio and animation syncing, which I was again very glad I didn't have to deal with. Uh, and that, that software has been on, on development for several years now and I think that they've got it down to uh, what they want it to do. They, they've uh, made a lot of changes. They're always making improvements to the software. And uh, it's been uh, probably the smoothest that I've worked with so far. That's such a smart way to do it. Uh, as a former producer, when I was going over, should we use this new Google version of a Kanban board? Should we use uh, Basecamp? There's like 8 billion different ways to do that. And none of them... None of them have the exact makeup you want. There's always one or two caveats where you're like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare and really annoying <laughs> as hell to get done because of how this person works or how this department works. So I think when you have a team of that size and a franchise that's successful and that releases that often, it just makes sense to be like, all right, here is our Assassin's Creed Kanban board that we created or task tracking management that we created. It's just going to work and fuck all these other ones. We don't need them. Uh, you did main and side quests for Origins. And I think it's always fascinates me to know kind of the split between how you're writing for that. Did you feel like you had more freedom to take chances when it came to side quests? Could you try weirder things because not everyone would see them since they weren't tied to the main story? No, I think that the main and side quests both came under about the same amount of scrutiny. So I just tried weird things, and if they stuck, they stuck, and if they didn't, they didn't. I just assumed that they wouldn't and was pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be the case that they made it into the game. Do you have a favorite side quest that stands out that you worked on? Is there one that just you're like, wow, I am really proud of that one? Oh, God, that's like asking me to choose a favorite child. That's I exactly what I'm that. doing. Please pick a kid. <laughs> Oh man, the other side quests are going to be mad at me. They're going to <laughs> my ear at They'll night. They'll get over it. They've known all along you had a favorite. They just finally get it confirmed. Um, well, one side quest that I really love is called Tamohotep's Song. Um, it is uh, branching off from a character that you meet in the main path. Uh, she's the wife of the high priest of Memphis. 
and you in in the main story find out that she's experiencing fertility issues and those aren't addressed in a significant way during the main half portion of the story but in a side quest you can go and gather some ritual items that she needs for uh you know to to help her with her fertility problems and i just had this really intense connection with this character she's based on a real historical figure the only record of, we have of her is this Stella, in which her biography was engraved after her death. And uh, we had started developing her as a character based on this account. And the game was developed in conjunction with the Egyptology Department of the British Museum. So that's how we had, had access to this information about her. And the character model turned out exactly as I would have built it if it had been me building it. And the voice actress was perfect. And I just like, I just love this character so much. And after I moved to Europe, I went to the British Museum's Egypt exhibit. And when I went there, I felt like I was looking for something. And I didn't really know what, but I was just, like, restlessly moving through this exhibit, looking for a thing that I didn't understand. And then, finally, I came upon this Stella, this Temotep Stella, the story that this character had been based on. And I just wept in the museum. Yeah. I cried because I thought about how many things, how many steps needed to happen before, you know, for this connection between me and this woman to have taken place. You know, she had to have lived, she had to have died, she had to have had people who were wealthy enough to get her story engraved. It had to be discovered, it had to be transported to the museum, then they had the museum entered into this business relationship with Ubisoft. I was hired. I was signed to this quest. Like there were, you know, thousands of steps involved in this process. So many of which I would never even be aware of. And it occurred to me that, you know, the ancient Egyptians had this big investment in the idea of immortality. And I had been instrumental in bringing this woman immortality in a way that she never would have understood if she had, you know, suddenly been able to communicate with me. But it was just this incredibly powerful moment. And moments like that are what make the stress and worry of the job worth it. You know, you were initially like, not sure if you should answer that because it's like picking between kids. But that was like the best possible answer I could have expected for a question like that. <laughs> I'm not sure if the security guard at the British Museum who saw me openly crying in the middle of the museum would agree with you. But uh, let's move on. You talk about that side quest and how much it meant to you. And it's funny because either side or main quest, you're often introducing these characters who might just be in the player's life for you know, 20, 30 minutes. And especially, and I'm not just saying this, like Assassin's Creed, um, that specific one that you had worked on, honestly, was, uh, or Origins, I'm sorry, was one that I really connected with with a lot of the side quests. There were characters that I just remembered and there's characters that I was really like, man, I want more of that for you as a writer. Is it difficult to just write this maybe 15, 20 minute, sometimes an hour long quest with this person and then just kind of move on from them? Are there a lot of times where you want to continue expanding on these? They might not be main characters, but these side characters who you researched a lot, who you invested a lot into and who you connected to? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in a lot of cases, there are big plans for these side characters that can't be realized because of a lack of resources. And you become so intensely emotionally attached to them. Uh, there was one quest that got cut that had a character I was pretty attached to in, and I insisted that he appear as a 
corpse in another quest and nobody but me is going to remember or know that this guy used to exist in a more fully fleshed out way but uh it was important to me that some representation of him appear in the game and fortunately uh the way i made the request wasn't too resource intensive so there was a little bit of a memorial for this character who never made it and uh yeah i mean especially when you get really attached to these characters you wish that you could tell their entire story but you hope that what you're offering is enough for the players to feel some of the investment that you felt i saw that part of your job was fixing narrative bugs and i think people outside of game development can hear the word bug and they think oh like that person that character's arm was suddenly way too long or this guy's clipping through a rock or you know the normal bugs you will see in terms of narrative bugs what exactly does that mean in the context of something like horizon or assassin's creed oh there's so many possibilities i mean i started <laughs> my career as a localization tester so whenever i get to test i'm always really happy because i feel like i'm in my wheelhouse like most of the time when I'm writing, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. But when I'm looking for bugs, I'm like, yes, I know how to do this. I'm good at this. So uh, there are a lot of things that can happen. Inconsistent references within lines, inconsistent spellings of character or place names, uh, inconsistent use of punctuation uh, within uh, subtitles. Uh, there's some cases where like the color of an asset could get changed and so a line could describe a character as having a green hat, but the hat is now red. But oh, the, interesting. Uh, at the time that the line was recorded, the hat was green. So the actor said it's green and then you have to fix that. Um, yeah, there's uh, cases where menu instructions are overly complex and they're not easily understood by the players. So you have to try and simplify them. Uh, there's cases where the wrong description is applied to the wrong item. Uh, I wrote some item descriptions for Assassin's Creed Origins, and that was super fun. And uh, I was really invested in making sure that they were applied to the right objects. But fortunately, that wasn't really my job. There's a big localization department there, and there's a big uh, QA testing department. But if I ever noticed any issues like that in my playthrough, I was free to report them, which was great. But yeah, uh, there's very, a lot of things that can go wrong on every level of game development, not just on the narrative level. And you know, we really depend on our QA teams to help keep us honest in that regard. How do you work with other pieces and members of the team to make sure, you mentioned item descriptions, and I think there's a lot of games where people don't even realize how clever or funny or interesting item descriptions can be. They just, they're thumbing through things so they're not thinking about it. Same way that if you pick up some random document or i've just been playing a lot of dragon quest 11 i just keep thumbing through a lot of the the random character dialogue or the different books that you pick up as someone who is writing that stuff and trying to make it as interesting as possible is there a conversation with designers or everyone else in the team to kind of be like hey we're putting the time into this to make sure it's good what can we tie to these items to make it worth the player looking through do you talk about okay if you pick up this book and you read it all the way through you get a 50 experience bonus or something like that does that ever come up well the ease of those kinds of conversations really depends on the size of the production team and uh, sometimes you just have to make decisions or carry out decisions without cross-collaboration between departments because there's just no time to talk, especially if you're getting close to a deadline. But yes, in an ideal scenario, you would have those discussions. And I think that the game always benefits when you're able to do so. 
And the smaller the team, the easier it is to collaborate in that way. Um, the bigger the team, the more specialized everyone's work becomes, and the harder it becomes just to remember to keep the right people in the loop, never mind have a productive conversation about how you want something to look. But again, that's where a, a testing team comes in handy, and they're going to you know, look for those discrepancies and look for those issues and, you know, in some cases, suggest ways in which those kinds of uh, messages or that kind of lore can be communicated more clearly. Um, so, yeah, you really depend on those teams, and they're a very, very valuable part of the development process. Yeah, having people to actually support discussions like that and make sure they happen seems extremely important and that the size of that production team really comes into play. Uh, moving on to Gorilla, uh, how long did it take for you to grasp how Gorilla writes games compared to the other different companies you had worked for once you joined the team? Because you were writing for the Frozen Wilds DLC, which as people would assume means it came after the main game. So there's already this established way that they're they're doing things in terms of writing, this very specific style, this very specific tone. Were you... Did you get to play all of a regular Horizon and then work on the DLC, or were you working on the DLC as the main Horizon was being written? Uh, well, I joined the team after the base game came out, mm. and I had played some of it before I joined the studio, but not all of it, and then I finished playing it after I joined. Uh, and uh, I think it wasn't especially different from writing for an established IP uh, like Assassin's Creed or Battlestar Galactica, because... Uh, there, there, you know, there's all these traditions and the narrative team has a really strong handle on what they're doing and what they want. So I just had to sort of hew to that. And I mean, that's the thing, like as much as you might want to experiment and sort of wow the public with your uh, totally unique and cool interpretation of the universe of the game, the most important thing is subduing your individual interests into what has already been established for the lore of the game. And that's not to say that you can't bring personal style and personal perspectives into it. In fact, I think that writing is a lot weaker when you don't do that. But yeah, I mean, it's just you have to see the work that's been done before and then do your best to fit your own work within that template while bringing in your own experiences and your own value to that work. Did you have any characters in that game or that universe that stuck with you to a similar level of Assassin's Creed? Was there anything that stuck out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I collaborated with another writer on the team to do some data points that conveyed a story of the present day. Because as you probably know, uh, Horizon is set in the far distant future post-apocalypse uh, of our current society. And so the other writer collaborated with me on developing these two characters who were working at a gift shop in Yellowstone Park, whose roles were replaced by... Uh, automated robots and uh, the other writer had already done some amazing work on these characters before I got there and then I was able to work with her directly on writing basically messages from them that uh, you could read uh, like diary entries and some of them had voice recordings and they formed a band and we were able to get a song recorded the other writer wrote the lyrics for wow. and it was amazing and we felt so attached to these characters that this other writer, D. Work, and I actually got matching tattoos with the title <laughs> of the song. Um, it's called Last Girls on Earth. So I have a tattoo on my ankle that says Last Girls on Earth. I also have a tattoo of Timotep's name on my arm in hieroglyphics. So as you can see, these emotional connections to these characters run pretty deep. 
That's incredible. Is this is this going to be a thing moving forward where every single like character game that you get attached to, you get a tattoo of? Because this, I fully endorse this. It sounds like a great idea. It is already a thing. I have a tattoo on my arm that rep- is an abstract design representing characters in Battlestar Galactica, Assassin's Creed Origins, and Horizon Zero Dawn, The Frozen Wilds. And once I ship another game, I'm going to add to the tattoo. This is... I've been looking on like what should the first tattoo for me be and like this is actually the greatest idea is like any game that you ship you suddenly just have some sort of like emotional attachment to that you put on this is okay this is I'm 1000% doing this and I can't wait great idea uh similar to our discussion earlier about side quests could you get a bit weirder or more experimental with the dlc of horizon again like you said you you need to put some of your personality in it because that's when writing is at its strongest but you're still trying to stick to a certain degree to the script and the way that horizon's written but were you able to take it in some new directions and maybe get approval on things you wouldn't have otherwise because this was additional content well, I don't know if I would say it's because there was additional content, but because it's set in a sci-fi post-apocalypse universe, uh, I was able to take a more speculative approach to my work because as much as Assassin's Creed is more historical fantasy than exact historical accounts, there were certain parameters that we had to operate within in order to make the setting seem plausible. but because this game is set in the future, I was able to do research on, you know, near future technology um, and AI and trending issues and sort of my contribution with, to the game was primarily to write short stories about this near future tech. And so that involved a lot more brainstorming and a lot more invention than working with a property that's based on history. Yeah, that might also, I know I keep saying I'd be terrified of doing stuff like that. But when you're speculating at that point, I think it's just, it's hard to, you can play with it, but then you have to do a lot of the research, right? You want to make sure it's like, all right, I'm going to mess around with this, but it has to be at least marginally feasible. I remember um, Enslaved Odyssey to the West from Ninja Theory, and that was always a really cool idea to me because it's the future, but it's this, it's post-apocalypse. It's like post-post-apocalypse where everything's lush and and grown out and you can kind of imagine that future and i'm assuming for something like horizon you're going through those different options about like okay this is one future but what about this different style of future and could this actually be possible i'm assuming you're having these discussions with a lot of the other writers mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah i mean there's so many different directions that technology can go and one thing i really admired about the property was how rigorous the research was in terms of you know, imagining what a near future scenario, an apocalyptic scenario could look like. Because I was reading the timeline of the world and I was like, this all seems really plausible. And so that was both scary and made my job easier. Uh, So I was really grateful for the meticulous approach that the narrative team had taken to establishing that timeline. Do you have an ideal team size that you like to work with? Do you enjoy the, the Assassin's Creed, the Horizon, the major AAA games? Or is there something maybe a little bit more special about working with a smaller team where maybe you even have a bigger impact and influence on how the story develops? Well, I do find myself preferring a smaller team. At Wuga, I'm one of three writers on my current unannounced project. And I really enjoy that because... We have different perspectives, but we also work really closely together. Like I remember being really sad when I was working on Origins that I never got to talk to some of the writers. And uh, I also like smaller studios 
uh, something in the range of 200 to 400 people works really well for me. Uh, because as a writer on a big project like Origins, I already had more influence on what the story looked like or on the on the final product than a lot of other people. And I was very privileged to have that influence. But at the same time, you do tend to feel a bit like a cog in the machine. And working at Wuga, I do a lot more narrative design, which is a really strong area of interest of mine. I'm In AAA, I became really used to collaborating with Quest mission designers, which I love, but it's really interesting for me to take on the challenge of determining what the player actually does in the context of the game. Because a lot of the uh, actions that the player takes in the project I'm working on are conveyed purely through narrative and through conversation, and I've never worked that way before, so it's really exciting for me. Yeah, and it's again, it's just so wildly different. Like they don't even feel like they should be the same job, right? We're working on the indie team versus AAA. It's an entirely different world, and even at that scale too, it's just it's every single group handles things differently. If you had a oh. dream franchise to write for. Is there something that stands out? I mean, you've done Battlestar Galactica, Assassin's Creed, Horizon. That's a pretty good list so far that you're building up. But is there something that stands out that if you can get, you know, just, okay, just for a full year, I'm going to write on this franchise. Which one would you pick? Um, Archer. Really? <laughs> I love Archer. <laughs> In Archer the game or Archer the show? Archer the game. Oh, man. What type of game would that be? Um, well, I, I kind of envisioned it as a mobile game. Um, I think that the quippiness of Archer lends itself well to, you know, small digestible bites as one might experience in playing a mobile game. And when I first started writing professionally, I wasn't very confident in my ability to write comedically. And that's something that I've really pushed myself to develop my skills in. And I would love to have the challenge of writing for this show that has such a particular style of comedy to see whether I can represent that well. And I'm also a big Simpsons fan, although there have been several Simpsons games made, so that might not be fertile ground anymore. Um, I'm also really excited to be working on a new IP, like Vuga does all original IP, and that was actually my next professional goal after working on these amazing established IP, which I was so lucky to be part of, to work on something that was just completely new that I had a you know a hand in developing in a, the early stages. So I'm really happy with where I am. But if anybody's making an Archer game, give me a call. Two things. First, I kind of like the idea of an Archer game that is. You remember Alpha Protocol by Obsidian? Like if it was that style where it's almost this open world spy RPG with a whole bunch of dialogue choices, and, and maybe that's where you get some of that comedy in i'm 1000 percent playing that game like let's kickstart that if possible and two you talk about establishing a new ip at your current role how much of that is collaborative versus leadership having a vision i think there's and i think it's fine either way very often you'll see an indie team where there is a leadership where it's like this is what we're making and of course we're going to take suggestions but this is our vision and we want you to be a part of it versus let's come together put our heads together and decide what this thing is which one of those has it been at Wuga, it trends a lot more collaborative, which I love. I've never been part of a team where disciplines offer feedback on each other's work in such a free way. And I, I remember I, I was working on a document that was shared with the rest of the team. And we're a fairly small team at this point. We're going to get bigger. But everyone on the team weighed in on the writing. 
And I was so blown away by the generosity and the intelligence and the uh, really high quality of their critique. And I like I was so happy to having the level designers and the programmers and the artists weighing in on my work and on a bigger production that's simply not possible there's just uh, too many dissenting voices and too incredibly large numbers to to make that kind of a process feasible so it's really cool to see how collaborative the work that I'm doing is now does it take a while to build that sort of camaraderie because you mentioned bigger teams it's not really possible but even on some smaller indie teams Maybe because the artists don't have the traditional background in writing, if they suggest stuff to the writers, they're like, uh, I don't know, or vice versa. If a writer is like, I think your art could be like enhanced in this direction, there might be a bit of a dispute there. Have you run into any of that or has it been just a process of everyone building that respect? Well, I think that if people trust the specialist knowledge of each respective discipline, then you can stop those kinds of problems before they start. Because each discipline needs to be empowered to make its own choices based on the uh, contributor's previous experience about what's going to be best for the production. But you also need someone who's going to harmonize the vision for the project. And that's why you have people in a creative director or creative lead role. And uh, I mean, I would say uh, that you do develop that kind of camaraderie on a larger production as well but it just tends to be restricted to smaller cells because there's only so many people you could have a close relationship with at any given time but uh yeah you do develop those relationships and they're very strong and uh yeah that's one of the things i really like about game development is that it's so collaborative i love working in a team people have asked me whether i would ever consider freelance work and i would just be so bored and miserable by day three probably you know lying on the floor like eating junk food you know, I'm crying because I don't get to hang out with my coworkers anymore. So yeah, I really like working in an office and I really like working with a team. I see the the crying part doesn't sound great, but the lying on the floor and eating junk food, like you were starting to paint a kind of positive picture where I'm like, okay, this doesn't sound terrible. But then yeah, I the the freelancing thing is super hard. Like the the being away from the team is difficult, especially in something like game development that's all about bouncing ideas off of people and, and getting that feedback, like you mentioned, to make sure you're heading in the right direction or just enhancing your work overall by talking to people of different disciplines. So I I would say like there's a lot of work work that I think is better done at home and game development is not that. And if anyone is listening and wants to get into writing for games who, I mean, this is this is what you do. You're great at helping kind of foster people into this to give people the tools. What would be the first thing you tell someone who right now, maybe they're in high school, maybe they're in college, but they they really want to do what you do. What advice would you give them right now if they want to get a head start? Okay, make a game. Just make a game. Like, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's so much easier than it's ever been. There are tons and tons and tons of free platforms online that you can use to make a game. Uh, you can make an interactive fiction game using an engine like Twine or Ink. Uh, you can make a side scroller or a top-down game or a platformer using an engine like Construct 2 or Game Maker or Stencil. They're all great and they don't necessarily require any coding. If I were hiring a writer, I if I saw that they were making at least a token attempt to integrate their ideas into a game setting, I would be a lot more impressed by that than by publication 
of uh, written work outside of that context. Um, also, ideas are cheap. They don't really mean anything, and they aren't valuable until you put them into practice and see how well they work. And uh, I think that a lot of people think that telling a professional in games that they're having a lot of ideas is a good thing, but usually you're executing on other people's ideas. So if you have a lot of ideas and you want to see them realized with the resources provided by a games company, you're probably going to be disappointed. So set realistic expectations and realize that the, the creativity of this job is in collaborating with these other disciplines and developing um, iterations of these ideas together. And that's the most exciting part of it for me. Perfect. Last major thing. What are you working on right now that you can actually talk about? And if you can't, you can be as vague as possible. And where can people find you on social media? Um, I cannot talk about the specifics of what I'm working on right now. I can't talk about a talk that I'm developing. Great. I'm going to be giving my first keynote at the Games and Rules Festival in Zurich, Switzerland this coming weekend. I'm going to be talking about uh, the evolution of adventure RPGs from Quest for Glory, Shadows of Darkness, which is a game I loved and played as a teenager and recently replayed and still loved and is still great and everyone should play it, all the way to Assassin's Creed Origins and talking about how the choices that each team made uh, allowed them to tell different stories, things like the map size, the lost conditions of the games, uh, the number of characters you meet, they all contribute to different narrative impressions. And I'm going to give a talk that parallels my own development from player to game maker uh, between the alongside the development of adventure games uh, between those two games. So um, yeah, I think, I hope that talk will be made available publicly. I'm pretty excited to be giving it and I'm very happy to have been invited. Um, oh yeah. And you asked where you can reach me on social media. My Twitter handle is Yana makes games, J A N A makes games. Um, I have a website, but you shouldn't visit it because it hasn't been updated since 2014. <laughs> uh, you can also email me at yanamakesgames at gmail.com. I read everything I get. Can't promise I'll reply, but I always enjoy reading the emails that I get from fans. All right, great. Yana, thanks so much for doing this. I feel like we've been talking about doing this for a long time, but there's been so many crazy circumstances, um, whether that be... We have. I think you first invited me to be on the podcast in January, and I'm glad we're finally doing it. Yeah, it's it's. I think you were switching jobs, then I was switching jobs, and you're switching jobs again, then I was switching jobs again. So it's just been all over the place. It, I, I love talking to people who write for games to hear their experiences, and especially someone like you who helps people so much in terms of helping get their foot in the door and giving them the tools necessary to do what they want to do. I can't wait to see what your next project is and when you're able to talk about it more publicly. I have a feeling we'll be talking on Twitter a lot because we're both going through some crazy changes. So good luck with everything in the future. And thanks so much for all the insight. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, please pet your dog for me. <laughs> I want you, she sneezed during your like last section where you were talking. I was hoping you might have heard it because it was so aggressively loud. Like she wanted to get <laughs> one word into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, she's like, before we're done, let's get this one sneeze in. Thankfully, it's not puke as far as I know, so we're totally fine. <laughs> uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, you tune back in for the next episode of The 1099.